Welcome to Why Is It Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In the second part of this two-part episode, Wisdom Labs' Parneet Paul talks with Dr. David Katz. Dr. David Katz, MD, is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and founder-president of the True Health Initiative. Katz was named one of the nation's top nutrition experts by dietspotlight.com and has authored 200 peer-reviewed publications and many hundreds of health columns. Katz is recognized globally for his expertise in nutrition, weight management, and the prevention of chronic disease. And now, part two with Dr. David Katz, interviewed by Dr. Parneet Paul. Welcome back to the Wise at Work podcast, David. Oh, great to be back, Parneet. Thank you. David, I loved part one of our conversation. And for listeners who may be just tuning into this episode, I highly recommend you check that one out. And some of the biggest takeaways from that conversation were the fact that paying attention to how we might use our lifestyle as medicine, you know, how we eat, move, sleep, and manage stress and relationships is so powerful and important for us all, especially when we consider the fact that being wise at work means not just having the energy and the focus to perform at our best, but also to prevent chronic disease and live not just longer, but healthier. And we also looked at the confusion, the confusion around various diets, and you helped us cut through the chaos and understand that when it comes to health and well-being, our best science still points to eating a diet, which is rich in whole foods, mostly vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and to drink water when we're thirsty. And we talked about the fact that plant-based diets have the added benefit of not just being good for us, but also good for our planet. So, so far we've talked about what works when we look at populations as a whole. But healthcare is increasingly moving towards personalized care. We know that some folks do well on almost any diet, while others respond better to specific ones. And so clearly, one size does not fit all. How do you think about personalization or customization when it comes to nutrition? Well, it's very clear, Parneet, that that's what people want. There's this notion that if it's personalized to me, it's more appealing, it's more engaging, it's going to work better. And there's some truth in that, and there's a fair amount of wishful thinking. So, you know, a lot of the effort to develop personalized nutrition is banking on nutrigenomics, the idea that we can identify in our genes specific indications about the diet that's going to be best for us. And the simple fact is that that's really not ready for prime time. We may get there eventually. We may understand the interactions between genes and specific variations on the theme of eating well someday. But right now, we really don't. And the best evidence of this comes from a big study out of Stanford University, my good friend, Professor Christopher Gardner. The study is called Diet Fits. It was published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was a beautiful study in part because Professor Gardner is such a pure scientist. All too often, studies of diet and nutrition are aligned with the biases of the researcher. So, you know, if they're comparing, say, a low-fat to a low-carbohydrate diet and they like one better, 
they make that one really good and they make the other one really bad, and it's not a valid comparison. Professor Gardner is one of the most honest, high-quality scientists I know in nutritional epidemiology. So he actually compared high and low-carb diets for weight loss and improving biomarkers and made them both good in all the same ways. So they were truly optimal versions of both diets. He then randomly assigned a whole bunch of overweight people to both diets. But he wasn't really interested in seeing which diet was better because we already pretty much knew that neither was better. But he also had detailed genetic information about all the participants and even indications of their insulin sensitivity. So some folks were somewhat insulin resistant and others had perfectly normal insulin metabolism at baseline. And the study tested the hypotheses that the people whose diet lined up with their genes would do better and the people whose diet lined up with their insulin status would do better. So a low-carb diet, for example, would be better for people who had some degree of insulin resistance at the beginning. For those who may not know what insulin resistance is, could you explain that, please? Sure. So I think in the simplest terms that will resonate with everybody, insulin resistance is the step before diabetes. So you know, insulin is what allows blood sugar or glucose to get into our cells. And most people who develop type 2 diabetes develop insulin resistance first. So the normal amount of insulin in your bloodstream, if you think of insulin as the usher or the escort that takes glucose from the bloodstream into the cells, essentially, you know, insulin opens the door and invites the glucose to go in. Well, what happens with insulin resistance is insulin gets to the door, tries to open it, and the door is stuck and has to pull on it, and it needs help. So it invites more insulin to help it. So you now need twice as much insulin to keep your blood sugar at a normal level, and then you need three times as much. And the molecular details of this are probably more than we need to get into, but excess weight gain, excess fat around the middle, a number of factors related to our overall homeostasis or hormonal balance explain why insulin resistance develops. But that receptor on your cell is like a door that just won't open. And so insulin keeps asking for more and more help from more insulin. And eventually the pancreas, which makes insulin, can't keep up and provide enough to get those doors open. And then your blood sugar starts to rise. And at that point, you have diabetes. So it's a precursor to diabetes. And the theory has long been that people especially prone to insulin resistance, elevated levels of blood insulin, and ultimately type 2 diabetes, well, if anybody's going to benefit from a low-carb diet, it should be those folks. So that was part of the very reasonable thinking that went into the construction of this diet fit study. But the answer was none of the above. People with specific genes did not do better on low-fat versus low-carb. Everybody did about the same. People with insulin resistance to one degree or another did not do better on a good low-carb diet than a good low-fat diet. And remember, both of these diets were designed to be just very good diets. So they were both massively better than everybody's baseline diet because the baseline diet in America today is the seafood diet. I see food and I eat it and most of it's junk, right? So everything was better than that. So everybody was assigned to a much better diet and everybody pretty much lost the same amount of weight and everybody improved their biomarkers, their blood lipids, their blood pressure, their blood sugar, their blood insulin about the same amount. And customization, personalization made no difference at all. And this is the most recent 
most definitive study of this topic. So on the one hand, I think we need a reality check. And by the way, Parneet, I think it's useful to remind ourselves we are a kind of animal. We really are. And, and there's sort of this unique homo sapien arrogance that thinks about the world in terms of nature and us as if we are separate from nature. And that's just not true. We're part of a global system. We're part of the biosphere. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And if we humble ourselves to think that way for just a moment, we recognize that we're not particularly focused on personalizing nutrition for elephants or zebras or koala bears or pick anything you like or dolphins. We pretty much accept that actually what determines the kind of food, the kind of diet a creature needs is the kind of creature that creature is, that that's the important thing. And which individual koala we're talking about matters a whole heck of a lot less than the fact that this is indeed a koala and all of them need to eat eucalyptus leaves because that's what koalas eat. And I think, frankly, there's a lot of that that pertains to Homo sapiens as well. We are a species and the basic care and feeding of Homo sapiens pertains to all of us. So the fundamentals of a healthy diet that's good for you, good for me, and good for everybody else are the same. But we absolutely can personalize based on preference and taste and culture. But when we personalize, we ought to start with the theme that's good for all of us and then customize based, frankly, on those things. I think customization can be based on personal preference more than it can be based on certainly genes and frankly even biomarkers. But it can also be based on personal experience. And if you've struggled to control appetite or weight and you find that certain dietary patterns better control your appetite than others, you need more protein than other people do, you do better on lower carbohydrate, that's absolutely fine. Then it just becomes a question of, okay, based on what we know about your goals, based on what we know about your preferences, based on what we know about your experience, how can we put together a variant on the theme of healthy eating for Homo sapiens that is in fact personalized for you, your family, and your lifestyle so it works for you? Because the best diet for you is one that you can actually practice, right? And that's a critical consideration. So there is a role for personalization, but everybody is banking on the false magic at this point of nutrigenomics. You know, there's some magical, mystical medical details we can elicit about you that will tell us what the formula is that will make you lean and healthy and vital and you can eat whatever you want for the rest of your life and it'll be easy breezy. Unfortunately, you know, that really is magical thinking. There's no there there. But we know the basic theme of optimal eating for our entire species. We know there are lots of variants on that theme and we can use a lot of information about you, including what you like to eat to personalize. Wonderful. I love how you underscore the fact that finding a diet that works for you is not as complicated as it may seem, that we have a lot of flexibility that's available to us. And frankly, this is a huge relief for those of us at work who put in a lot of effort to change our diets based on the next new fad we may read about and then get discouraged when it doesn't work or we're not able to keep up with it. And then we go back to our old patterns that weren't doing much good in the first place. And as you say, the diet that works is the one that you can stick to. Absolutely. And Parnit, if I may, I want to provide a quick analogy. I like what you just said. You're exactly right. So people try something, it doesn't work. They try something, it doesn't work. They get discouraged. Imagine if we did that about education and our careers. 
So, you know, imagine we simply decided that years of education and training to be able to do the things we want to do, because, you know, this is a podcast about why is it work. So let's talk about what gets us into a good working situation in the first place. We had to acquire a certain skill set. We, we had to have at least the entry-level skills to get us hired, to have a job, to have a career, so we could be talking about the work site. There is no work site for people who don't work. So we're talking about working people who earned it. And you earned it with years of education and training. Now, in some cases, it's more years. In some, it's fewer. But all of us are a product of learning skills. Minimally, we learned how to read. We learned how to write. We learned how to add and subtract and multiply and on and on it goes. And, you know, some of us had umpteen years of education to do what we do. But, you know, we all signed up for the proposition that there was no shortcut. But imagine if we treated education the way we treat nutrition. We'd all be shopping around for some quick fix, magical shortcut. So you don't need years of education. You don't really have to learn to read or do math or, you know, any particular skill set. You know, you just have to sign up for my magical, mystical formula. You know, just stand on one leg and chant my mantra under the light of a full moon every alternative Thursday. And, you know, presto, you'll be hired and have a wonderful job and all will be well. It's obviously nonsense. You know, get rich quick, get a job quick schemes are all nonsense. Somebody's trying to sell you something. And grown-up, sensible people know that it's nonsense. They tend not to do it. But imagine if you did. You try it, it would fail. You would be discouraged and out of work, and so you'd need to try the next. And you'd sort of set yourself up for an endless sequence of failures because you didn't accept the fundamental truth. No, there's no shortcut here. This is one of those things that really matters to the overall quality of your life. I want a decent job. I want to be able to earn a decent living. I want to be able to like what I do. I want to be able to take care of my family. I'm actually going to have to put in the time. I'm going to have to make this a priority, devote myself to it. I'm going to have to accept some delayed gratification. I'm not going to get my dream job, you know, after 15 minutes of education. It's actually going to take some years. But I accept all of that. I'm going to work my way through, get the job I really like, and thrive in it for the rest of my life. That's what we're all aiming for. Well, you know, frankly, health is the same. I think we really do need to grow up and recognize that health, like wealth, Nutrition, like education, is something that deserves to be taken seriously, that we actually know the formula for a healthy, long life. We just keep rejecting it for the sake of false magic. We would never do that about work. We would never do that about education. We would never do that about the fundamentals of taking good care of our children. And yet we've been doing it for decades with nutrition and health. It's time to stop. Wise words indeed. Thank you, David. Speaking of shortcuts, especially here in the biohacking community in Silicon Valley, some of the more popular trends at the moment include intermittent fasting and ketogenic diets. Right. And this is what a lot of folks at work are interested in and talking about. And people who are on these diets are reporting great results, great results for weight loss, for improving focus and energy, for better blood sugar control. What's your take on these trends? What do we know for sure from the science at this point? Okay. So to run through key considerations quickly first, so I don't do intermittent fasting and I don't do a ketogenic diet. What's my anecdote? My anecdote is I eat well, exercise, don't smoke, try to sleep enough, try to manage stress, love my family. And, you know, I don't want to overstate the case here, but 
you know, my HDL is, is higher, higher than my LDL, which is a really good thing. My blood pressure is perfect. My body mass index is perfect. I weigh about what I weighed when I graduated high school. You know, I'm a 55-year-old guy with five kids and a desk job. My percent body fat is about eight and a half and on and on it goes. You know, so I hear these testimonials all the time from people. I am on the ketogenic diet and I lost 20 pounds. Well, I'm not on the ketogenic diet and I didn't need to lose 20 pounds in the first place. You know, I win. You know, just really respect lifestyle as medicine. You'll never need to lose the weight. You'll be healthy for the rest of your life. So, you know, these anecdotes don't mean much to me. You know, whatever the fad diet du jour is, you can find the people who are singing its praises. Quickly about the ketogenic diet, it is so not new. Chapter 3 in Atkins' New Diet Revolution in the 1990s, chapter 3 was about why ketosis was critical to the diet and actually has ketogenic diet in the title of that chapter. So that's 20 years ago. He actually first wrote that book in the 1970s and it was already there. So we've actually had exposure to this same exact concept for 40 years. If it works so terrific for most people, where the heck are all the thin people, right? So we tried it. Very few people can manage to stick with it because, you know, essentially you're starving your body of the most nutritious source of food. You can't eat fruit. You can't eat whole grains. You can't eat beans. You can't eat lentils. You can't eat many vegetables. So, you know, essentially, yeah, if you mimic starvation, deny yourself carbohydrate by eating mostly just meat, you will lose weight. But very few people can live that way. It's almost certainly really bad for your health. We don't have any long-term studies to show it because there are no long-term studies because nobody can stay on it for the long-term anyway. So, you know, people go on a diet, lose a lot of weight in six weeks and, you know, write their testimonial. It's fantastic. It's terrific. But, you know, frankly, people would lose weight over six weeks if they had a bout of cholera and could tell us, gee, you know, what a great way to lose a lot of weight. They could do it with a binge of cocaine. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of really bad ideas that would fix your weight and your cholesterol and your blood sugar and your blood pressure over six weeks or maybe even six months, but that would be calamitous for you over six years and certainly six decades. So I'm just not interested in you know these quick fix fads that come and go and come again as soon as we've forgotten about the last time they were here. So the ketogenic diet is not new. Yes, it does work for short-term weight loss. Anything that imposes discipline on undisciplined eating works for short-term weight loss. Anything that cuts out a lot of foods and says you can no longer eat any of these works for short-term weight loss. And a whole bunch of stuff that's really bad for health, like being desperately ill, works for short-term weight loss. We have no evidence that the ketogenic diet is consistent with long-term health. If you can lose weight in the short term by doing something that's really good for your health and vitality, or by doing something that's probably totally at odds with your long-term health and vitality, which would you choose for your family? And I think that's really the basis to sort of wrap up the ketogenic diet. You know, if this is not something you think is a great idea for people you love, whose health you care about in the long term, why is it a good idea for you? So that's how I feel about that. I think it's not only silly, but I think it's old and silly. I think it's basically leftover dietary fad nonsense that's now been reheated twice because we forgot that we've already tried to ingest it and it didn't help us the last time. Intermittent fasting is a little different. You know, I would argue that intermittent fasting is simply an alternative strategy for controlling how much you eat. So, you know, intermittent fasting doesn't specify what you're eating. 
And you know, it's not just a question of how much total food we eat. Food is the critical fuel for every vital function of the human body. And food is the source of all of the construction material that a growing child uses to grow and that adults use to replenish everything that's worn out. So the quality of food is absolutely crucial. So if we're going to talk about intermittent fasting, let's not pretend that just not eating some of the time is everything we need to know. We need to know what you're eating when you do eat. Equally important, okay? So if you're going to do intermittent fasting, when you eat, eat well. Intermittent fasting is not a license to say, I don't eat on Tuesdays, so on Wednesdays I can have donuts all day. Bad idea. No matter how often you eat or don't eat and how you fast intermittently, what you eat, when you eat is critically important. So if you eat a sensible assembly of wholesome foods, and you want to help to control your total intake with intermittent fasting, and it works for you better than controlling the quantity you eat every day, it's fine. So, you know, in my case, I eat wholesome foods in a sensible assembly, mostly plants, overwhelmingly plants. And I fill up on relatively few calories because most of what I eat is highly nutritious, very satiating, and relatively low in calories most of the time. Vegetables are low in calories, whole grains are relatively low, beans and lentils are relatively low, and on and on it goes. And I don't get calories from most of what I drink because most of what I drink is plain water. So, you know, I don't have any difficulty controlling my quantities. I stop eating when I'm full. I never count calories. I know that calories count, but I never need to count calories. So I would say, you know, you have different ways to control your total amount of eating. If intermittent fasting coupled with eating wholesome food works for you, I think it's fine. I think we are pretty well adapted to handle that. I mean, after all, if you go back to the Stone Age, we couldn't always find food. Hunts were not always successful. So we wound up doing intermittent fasting, not because we wanted to, but because we had no choice. But it suggests our bodies are pretty well adapted to handle that. You know, I think the questions then become, does it work in your lifestyle? Does it work for your family? Does it make you the odd person out? And is it uncomfortable and hard to sustain? In which case I'd say, well, there are better ways. But if you are practicing with friends or coworkers or family and everybody's okay with it and you don't feel lousy the days you fast and you don't have a headache and you're able to concentrate, if it works for you, I have no real objection. There's no real magic in it. There's no proof that it's better. It's just a different way to control your calorie intake. But if it happens to be a way that works for you, I would argue this, Parnit, is one of the examples of personalization that potentially could make sense. Wonderful. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how employers might meaningfully invest in lifestyle medicine. David, you are on the advisory board at Virgin Pulse. You have a unique perspective and access to this landscape. So what have you seen so far that works really well? So first of all, just a plug for Virgin Pulse. I'm not peddling them, but as you say, I'm an advisor and you know it's a great portal for some of the best programming and practices in worksite wellness. So, you know, I think getting involved in an opportunity like that where essentially you've got all of the best practices being curated so you can shop them, one-stop shopping, I think that is a real asset to motivated employers who want to create a culture of wellness. The next thing I would add is that it really is a culture of wellness. So, you know, I think the critical issue, Parnit, is to lead by example. 
you know, to try and practice healthy lifestyle. And if you're saying people should get exercise, then during the workday, you need to create opportunities for that. So there should be walk breaks and places to walk. And this will vary with the resources of any given worksite setting. But to the best of your ability, whether it's indoors, outdoors, both, you know, create opportunities for activity bursts throughout the day, make video programming available or apps available that provide guidance for brief activity bursts throughout the day, provide group walking opportunities, act the worksite indoors, outdoors, create an environment where healthy food options are the norm. If you have vending machines, you need to curate what the content so that you're offering healthy items. There are all sorts of places you can go for advice about healthy vending, including Center for Science and the Public Interest. On their website, there's good information about that. CDC offers good information about that, the Centers for Disease Control. And I'm sure, you know, Virgin Pulse is one of the many sources that can help with that. If you have a cafeteria, you want healthy food, you want good information about the food. We could go on and on, but essentially you create an environment that says healthy living really matters here, and we're putting our practices, our social cues, and our environmental resources where our mouths are. And you will see the leadership doing the things we're telling you are important. So, you know, we're actually asking you to do what we do, not just as we say. I think, again, that leading by example is extremely important. The other thing I think is really important and often neglected is to recognize that as important as the worksite is, we actually spend most of our lives elsewhere. And home matters too. And, you know, if you are in the worksite during the day, but you've got kids at home, what happens at the worksite is probably just going to stay at the worksite if you go home and your kids are accustomed to a junk food diet and you need to have junk food at home to satisfy them. It's going to call your name. You're going to eat it. So I think one of the critical things, and Parneet, I was editor-in-chief for five years of the peer-reviewed journal Childhood Obesity, and I wrote about this a number of times there during that tenure, that you know we sort of have this cultural blind spot. We do worksite wellness and forget that employees are people, and people are often parents, and parents are going to be powerfully influenced by their kids and are a powerful influence on their kids. So how about if businesses make sure that they consider how can we do something for the kids too? Maybe we can sponsor wellness programming in the schools in our area. I actually came up with a concept I called Be the Boss, B-A-W-S-S, businesses applying wellness strategies in schools, the idea that work sites and schools could partner to make sure the kids were, in essence, getting the same religion about healthy living as their parents in an age-appropriate way. So when parents come home from the work site, they're not dealing with kids who want to eat junk food. We developed at the Prevention Center here at Yale many years ago a program we called Nutrition Detectives. It's an interactive DVD. We've studied it extensively. We have a number of papers showing how well it works. It's a food label literacy program for elementary school-age kids. And basically, it teaches kids how to identify and why to choose the more nutritious items in the supermarket. We found that it was almost equally powerful for the parents as for the kids. It's a freely available program. And so, you know, we've encouraged employers to, okay, by all means, create a culture of wellness, shop the optimal programming, you know, whether it's a place like Virgin Pulse or guidance from the Centers for Disease Control or some other place. But, you know, let others curate the best practices for you and then figure out which ones you can implement. But don't forget that the basic building block of culture is family. 
Think about your employees as members of a family and think about what else you can do to influence the culture of wellness in the family. If you can find a way to reach the kids as well as the parents, I think that's a uniquely powerful formula. All great ideas, especially starting early with kids. There's a parallel there with mindfulness being taught in some schools, even in kindergarten, so that kids develop the capacity to understand and manage their emotions and stress right from the very beginning. Totally agree. Totally agree. With all of these things, you know, every aspect of healthy living, it's never too late. But the earlier you start, the better. And the other thing we all know, Parnit, is that in unity, there is strength. I think we often overlook the crucial contribution of unity in our efforts to adopt a healthy lifestyle. I mean, after all, you know, we live in a culture that runs on Dunkin', drinks Coca-Cola when thirsty, and where multicolored marshmallows are part of a complete breakfast. If you're trying to eat well and be healthy, you have to do it in spite of it all. That's not easy. You know, we're sort of going against the main currents of our culture. It's hard enough to do that with the strength born of unity from your family and friends. It's nearly impossible to do it all on your own. So you really do need that culture of wellness at the worksite. But I think engaging the family really is key. And in the unity of a family, there is strength. And I speak from experience here. So my wife, Catherine, and I have five children. And we've raised five extremely healthy, vital, fit, active, lean young adults. And there's nothing you know, magical or mysterious about us or our kids. We just made this a family priority. They grew up with that. The fact that it became a priority for them made it easier for us. The fact that we were devoted to eating well and being active and lifestyle as medicine made it normal for them. And then each of us sort of fortified the other, and it's just a cat's family value. And by the way, speaking of cat's family values, I do think that's so important. Just to quickly throw out a quick resource here. I practice what I preach. As I said, my wife is a brilliant cook, and we have paid all of that forward. She has a free recipe site called Quizinicity. Dot com. So it's like Cuisine City with an I in the middle, Cuisinicity.com. And all of the Cat's Family Greatest Hits are available there, the recipes, how to cook them, videos that Catherine has made of herself in our family kitchen showing you how these dishes are made. And they generally are quick, economical, convenient, family-friendly, I can tell you absolutely delicious and amazingly nutritious. So check out Quizinicity.com because, you know, we agree, Parneet, that the formula for healthy living is not as complicated as people make it out to be. It's simple. But simple is not the same as easy. And I think one of the things we have to acknowledge is the formula is simple, but getting there from here in our modern culture is not easy. And so, you know, I think these various resources and tools and programs that empower us so that, you know, we can get there from here. That's a crucial part of the conversation, too. Absolutely. And that really resonates with us because at Wisdom Labs, we're really emphatic about behavior change and creating this culture of well-being at work. Our focus is addressing stress, burnout, loneliness, and anxiety in the workplace. But as you've pointed out so beautifully, we're all just part of this one big ecosystem that influences our health. So, David, you've spoken about a few key resources we can use. Are there some others that you'd like to point us to? Absolutely. So one absolutely crucial 
resource is the True Health Initiative. So, Parneet, we started our discussion and got into details of, you know, all these competing theories about what people should eat and is saturated fat good for us now and is the ketogenic diet good for us now. And, you know, it's so easy to get confused. And in particular, if you are not an expert and why should you be, you know, you hear these people opining and they've got fancy credentials and it's doctor this and professor that and you don't know who to believe. And so it's kind of this endless he said, she said. And I realized how dangerous that was because, you know, the average person wouldn't know who to trust. So I thought, well, why not show them that it's not a he said, she said, but in fact, there's massive agreement among a who's who in the experts all around the world. And that's what the True Health Initiative is all about. So it's an organization I formed. It's a 501c3 federally authorized nonprofit. And our primary mission is to show that there is massive agreement among the world's leading experts in nutrition, lifestyle, preventive medicine, health promotion, sustainability, on and on it goes, about the fundamentals of eating well and living a healthy lifestyle. And the beauty of this, our council of directors is about 500 strong from over 40 countries, but the hybrid vigor of it is incredible. So we've got the world's leading experts on the vegan diet, We've got the world's leading experts on the paleo diet. We've got everything in between, and they all come together at the truehealthinitiative.org to say, we agree about the fundamentals that matter most. So I think when you recognize that the formula for lifestyle as medicine is about science, it's about sense, and it's buoyed by a global consensus of experts, you have the chance finally to rise above the din of the he said, she said, fractious discord that plays out in our pop culture and media all the time. So check out the truehealthinitiative.org. I think that's a great resource. So about the time we're having this conversation, my newest book is just out. It's called The Truth About Food. And it's a 200,000-word magnum opus. And I say that, I hope not immodestly, but I tried to capture not just everything I know about healthy eating, but how and why I know it. And what I point out in the book is that the truth about food is simple, but the lies are complicated. And you need to be able to see through all of the false narratives and the deceptions and the distortions so that you can really embrace and benefit from the truth. This book is available on Amazon for $9.99. All proceeds go to support the True Health Initiative. I signed over all of my royalties to support the True Health Initiative, so you're supporting a worthy cause. It's available as an ebook or print on demand, so you can get it as an ebook and then search. You could look up ketogenic diet, you could look up saturated fat, you could look up intermittent fasting, any topic you want, I cover them all. And you could see why what's true is true and why what's false is false. And my hope is that can really make a meaningful contribution in getting us all to embrace the fundamental principles of healthy eating. I'll mention again my wife's great cooking site, freely available to all, quizinicity.com. I'm working on a new innovation in dietary assessment. It's called Diet ID. You can learn about it at dqpn.io. That stands for Diet Quality Photo Navigation. That's the method we've developed. And essentially, Parneet, what we've invented, and I've started a company to develop this, is a technique where we can determine your current diet complete with an objective measure of your diet quality and the nutrient levels you're getting from food in under a minute. It's fun, it's easy, and then we can help you identify a goal diet in just seconds. 
We can track your progress as you change your diet, and we're developing the tools to navigate you from any given baseline diet to any given goal diet, and we'll make that available via an app. And up until now, it's been really tedious, really hard, either to assess your current diet or to track diet change. So we think this is a real game changer, and it's coming soon to a program near you. You know, it'll either be adopted into a comprehensive wellness program that you're using, or maybe it'll be adopted into a program where you're shopping for food, or you'll be able to access it in the App Store. But if you go to dqpn.io, you can see what we're up to and keep track of that. But I'm really excited about that. When it's easier to assess our diets and when it's easier to track dietary change, it becomes easier to make dietary change. So we think that was a crucial piece of the larger puzzle that was missing. I'm really excited about the work we're doing on that. So that's the short list of things I'm very excited about. There's some other things I'm working on now, but that'll probably do. And everything I'm doing is consolidated at my website, davidkatzmd.com. So I guess I'd throw that into the mix. That's kind of a hub that captures all these different things I'm working on. Fantastic. David, I can't thank you enough. This conversation has been truly enlightening and inspiring for me, as I'm sure it's been for our listeners. I wanted to say I'm just so grateful for your tireless work, advocacy, and all of your wisdom. Thank you so much. Oh, that's so kind, Parneet. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.